Welcome to this 60th anniversary edition of Happy Times and Places. It's a multi-parter. I, Toby Haydock, have asked lots of movers and shakers from the world of Doctor Who to give me their five favourite things about an unearthly child. I've done a commentary on it, now I'm going to listen to their things, and they're all special secret guests. Hello lovely Toby Haydock, it's Katie Manning here. Well, happy times and places. <laughs> We've shared a few of those, haven't we, my darling? And I'm sure most of your listeners know that not only are you an incredible broadcaster, writer, actor, but you're also an amazing stand-up comedian, and I've seen a lot of your work, and you are brilliant. Happy times and places, too, with Doctor Who for me. Happy times, and many of them, but always in freezing cold places and here we are 60 years on <laughs> celebrating Doctor Who's long 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 run giving so much to so many inspiring those to go into the arts and the sciences and helping so many through difficult times. I am so grateful to have been part of this show that I remember seeing an episode many years ago with um, William Hartnell and I remember sitting down thinking wow this is a really cool show and it still is all these years later it's a show that's that's been made constantly with total love and dedication from everyone involved all the actors all the technical people well what we used to call the producers and now the showrunners and here we are Russell T Davis is back again and I know giving it a big injection of Botox <laughs> anyway Toby have a wonderful show and hello to all your fabulous listeners big big hugs and um Let's have some more happy times in some wonderful places together again soon. Take care, my darling. Bye-bye. Well, Doctor Who. It only seems like five minutes ago we were doing the 50th. And now it's the 60th. <laughs> anyway, love to everybody. Happy birthday, us. Hey, so proud to have been part of it. Thanks so much to Katie Manning and to Louise Jameson for bestowing their greatness upon this humble podcast. Uh, normally, the guest who chooses the episode introduces each uh, instalment of Happy Times and Places to let us know what is forthcoming. You know, we will be watching, I have actually just watched, An Unearthly Child and the commentary is on the previous instalment of this Unearthly Child 60th Anniversary Batch of Happy Times and Places. And what follows is the aftermath, which was a lot longer than I'd expected it to be. Because I asked lots of different people from the worlds of Doctor Who to tell me their five favourite things about An Unearthly Child. And loads of them responded. And of course, I couldn't just then play their thoughts without commenting upon them. So what follows in the next, I don't know how many episodes, because I haven't finished the record or the edit, will be the aftermath of the commentary in which I play the responses of my volunteer guests who give their perspective on the episode, which uh, are all very different because they're an eclectic bunch of folk, all with some connection to the show, uh, some of whom have actually directly worked on it, classic series and new series. So it's packed full of special guests, and I hope that uh, provides enough variety uh, in order to justify this full-length excursion into the ins and outs of 
that very first episode. It's not the story, An Unearthly Child. I know some fools call it uh, 100,000 BC. I'm very much an unearthly child man for all four episodes. Why? Because that's what I was used to when I was younger, and that's how it has stayed. I have no logic or other ways to justify it. I just, I know what I like, and I like An Unearthly Child, and I don't like 100,000 BC. But anyway, this is all about that very first episode, An Unearthly Child. Uh, there's no doubt about what that's called. And uh, we'll just go through the guests in the order that I listen to them uh, to see what they like about the uh, about the episode. And then I'll, I'll comment on their comments. And uh, we will continue at this rate until the crack of doom. Uh, but these podcasts started during the pandemic. And I asked, you know, mates of mine, I asked people that, you know... Um, I thought could lend it some credibility but you know who were also chums who I thought would do it and not tell me to get lost and actually since this next person who did the very first uh one to go out I think well I think my friend Chris Boyle did the first one I recorded but then I think I think I did I swap the order when I when I put them out uh I think I did when I put them out actually uh, for public consumption maybe not maybe chris and day of the daleks were first i can't remember i can't remember it. it's my own podcast it's terrible i think that's uh, how come I, can, I, I i'm expected to chronicle a television show i wasn't in when i can't even chronicle a podcast i've done everything for but anyway tom burgess and uh the sontaran experiment were uh very early uh if not the first <laughs> Um, entries into uh, Happy Times and Places, this uh, this podcast, what you are listening to right now, and um, yeah, he he. Since then, in fact, last night as I record this, he did his own Doctor Who show. Uh, so I've just checked. No, the second the second Happy Times and Places was the Sontaran experiment with Tom Burgess. I think maybe it was the first one I put out on video on YouTube because it was only a two-parter anyway doesn't who cares it doesn't matter you're just listening to this you don't care how it balances out in terms of my podcast i'm trying to make everything have a cause and reason why uh, it doesn't mean it's because i'm a doctor who fan and i need everything to fit into certain places and to have patterns uh, but tom uh, as was a comic then and is a comic now but he's since done his doctor who show with his character peter fleming who is an old bbc producer most of whose programs have been lost uh, but his latest show at the Edinburgh Fringe was Peter Fleming meets Doctor Who. And he did the last night of his tour at my comedy club, Excess Malarkey, last night. He did one of the very first uh, Happy Times and Places. Uh, and I've asked him, Tom Burgess, comedian, uh, to... He's also on the production team of Blue Peter. So he crosses with that other great institution with which Doctor Who is inextricably linked. Uh, I've asked Tom to give me his five favourite things. Hello Toby and happy times and places listeners, it's Tom Burgess here. Nice to be back with you after doing the Sontaran experiment at the very beginning of this project. Uh, it's lovely to be with you for An Unearthly Child. Uh, my five favourite things about the episode are as follows. Uh, the school children from the very second scene of Doctor Who that Toby have already covered in such depth. Kenneth Williams, Shady Sal, the lot of them. Now, what is it about these people? Is it a certain quality they bring to their roles? Or is it maybe the mythic status we 
give them. These people who took a little walk-on role in some show that will probably come and go, be forgotten about in a few weeks that didn't quite work out that way. I wonder if those people had any idea that that was going to be their most watched few seconds of work going through the decades. It's an amazing thought. Anyway, I love them. Uh, uh, well, I am going to stop. I'm loving the fact that everyone's choosing some of the school children because I have a special interest. If you haven't heard my far too much information, it's down to season four in uh, in iTunes uh, and it, uh, far too much information is a patron exclusive podcast but I was so proud of this one because I found out something I tracked down every single one of those school children uh, and and all life is there uh, and it, and and it, it was a project of such little consequence and yet I'm absolutely thrilled I spent so many hours on it just to put names to faces and to find out about those people and the fact that people who were close to them gave me their time and you know enjoyed having them live again because they flickered for seconds in the background or occasionally in the foreground of not just an episode of Doctor Who but the very first and I love the fact that that has obviously chimed with people like Tom and Jim so again it's probably just vanity but I don't know it's lovely it's not about me it's about them it's about the fact that people or it's maybe it's about the fact that i've always been enchanted by that idea that somebody you know is committed to tape forever no matter what else happens to them and they're part of history and that will never be taken away and they'll be there forever no matter what happened to them before and after in their lives whether it was good bad or indifferent and again in the podcast you discover it's it's often all three uh I find it really strange and moving, which is perhaps why I always think about actors and I'm obsessed with, and I, you know, I like the idea of, you know, finding out about the people who cross paths with our show, even if only briefly, because most of them, in fact, all of them, bar Francesca Bertarelli, were never in the show again. Uh, so that's that's quite. What are the odds of that as well? Um, but the fact that that's chimed with with the first two guests delights me my next favorite thing the second favorite thing uh is ian's cry of it's alive <laughs> uh, i think watching as a kid on hmm, to be fair the, the the version of this i knew best was the untransmitted version because i had the hartnell years on vhs before i got an unearthly child in 2000 the remastered one um but in both versions it feels like there's such a big reaction from William Russell there. As a kid, that felt like a bigger moment than when they actually step into the TARDIS for a moment. It's it's some sort of it's some sort of first leap into this new reality that Ian and Barbara are going to have to grapple with now for the next two years. Um, I think it, it interestingly it probably made it feel quite distant to me because I was born too late to understand how that police box is out of the ordinary compared to any other. It, that that cry of it's alive it, it says that something strange is coming is about to happen um my third favorite thing uh is a nice telly geek one uh my third favorite thing is the as live setup that we see playing out over the course of this episode i think the info text on the dvd is very good for drawing attention to this and i think it's what first did it for me the transition from Ian and Barbara talking to Susan in the classroom, saying goodnight, then them discussing her. So Susan reads the book about the French Revolution to give Ian and Barbara enough time to cross to the car set. The camera then dissolves and cuts between them and Susan back on the classroom set, 
those flashbacks happening in real time, then cuts back to Ian and Barbara for a slightly longer chat, which gives Caroline Ford enough time to put her coat on and head through the junkyard set. And that, that whole mystery that's lasted for weeks in Ian and Barbara's head, and it's played out in just a couple of minutes in Lime Grove Studio D. It's so theatrical. And I don't think there's any episode of Doctor Who that hammers home to me just how up against it that cast and crew were, the, the enormity of their achievement week upon week. There's a joke about it in my live show that I do as Peter Fleming, my comedy character. He's doing a show all about Doctor Who all of this year, um, and Peter Fleming himself observes that with a setup no more sophisticated than what the one show has today, the Doctor Who production team were able to craft some of the most spellbinding, innovative, immortal moments ever to grace the screen. Which begs the question, what's the one show's excuse? <laughs> I saw him do that very joke last night. That is a great point. I mean, I you know, I yeah, the the fact that it's all you know done multi-camera and you know as 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 one take if possible, you know, uh, recording breaks were few and far between. There is actually, as I say, that that weird cut uh, in the episode where uh, in in the scene with Susan and Barbara, but that's unusual. But yeah, th- those sequences uh, are artfully crafted in order to make sure that they could do all the practical things uh and uh, and you know explain the backstory with the available cast but but one half of the cast were only available in one part of the set whilst the other one had to be available in the other and there had to be time to reposition and change and blah, blah, blah. and it tells us the whole story with essentially let's take the school children out of it for a second because they've already featured far more than i thought they would they've been mentioned more than william arnold so far but you've got you know, Caroline Ford and William Russell and Jacqueline Hill to tell us the whole backstory uh, and and across different time zones, but actually played out in production terms as live. You know, they were doing it there and then. And then, yes, to give Caroline Ford time to get into a hat and coat in order to then come to the present to, to, to enter the junkyard, which reminds me of Caroline Ford's hat and coat, William Hartnell's costume, those those costumes that are in those don smith photographs that we have around this episode that i think themselves are unlike any other doctor who photo shoot and a beautiful and i love those costumes and i love the fact we don't really have them in any other photo shoot uh and that those that i can see all of those pictures in my mind's eye uh, and and susan's hat and coat we barely see in the episode but i think it's a terrific costume and i love those costumes and i associate them with this episode and i love them i love them uh but they're another thing i didn't choose uh my fourth favorite thing and this is pretty much standard for me with any doctor who story is music and sound um the tardis take off that persistent hum that it gives out in the junkyard in that very first long shot going through the radiophonic workshop knows exactly what's needed right from the beginning it's so so eerie so too is the theme tune the eeriest sound in the world uh, even the guitar melody in uh, the john smith and the common men track that susan is listening to there is a certain mournful quality to that um, to that melody and also we have norman k doing the score now he only does three for the program all in season one and i think because it's peppered through that first year it gives season one this really unique feel like it's it's one of the most sinister scores, I think, that um, harp, I want to say, is Ian and Barbara heading into the into the junkyard in the first place. But it keeps that whole season feeling a little bit like this show lives in, in the dark spaces and in the shadows, in a, in a cave of skulls or, or a, an abandoned spaceship floating around the sense sphere or, or just the, 
the unknown corners of an old junkyard. I love the music in this episode. Um, Yay! Uh, I chose the sound as well, and I yeah, and and and, and he's right about Norman Kay's music because it's in keys and then it's in sensorites. It does sort of bind. It's like it's like the sort of bones of the of the of of the, uh, and it's actually in places plinky plonky, not unlike it's played on bones, but it is the sort of bones. That 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 fix you know that the flesh of the season is built around if you like and the fact that there's an echo of the first story in keys and then sensorites interestingly the two to, to, you know two futuristic stories having been part of the you know the, the first journey to the past um, does give a sense of sort of fusion to to the and 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 it does have that weird sort of mysterious detached moody quality about it that that no other music is really like uh, in 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 the show uh in in you know in 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 those first few years so it 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 does mean that season 1 does have a sort of unifying quality that's all its own even though it's not in every story of season 1 but it it, it echoes back just enough and then no more norman k and he's gone uh and i i i believe you know he wasn't all that bothered about doc 2 and was a bit disdainful of his work on it but uh, i think it's magnificent and uh, i'm glad it's there and i'm glad he did a couple of more stories in order to, you know, to echo back to that that very first one, because otherwise the first one would have seemed too much like an anomaly, and it has to be magnificent and stand tall over everything else. Because it's the first episode of Doctor Who, but it also has to be part of Doctor Who, and yet it's also wonderful because it's got bits that were never quite done that way again. But it still needs to still needs to feel not too different from the, the than other parts of the show. Otherwise, it would be you know too much of an enigma and that would make it stand out for the wrong reasons it stands out for its magnificence but to all other purposes it is you know it is a great episode of doctor who it's both it's both at the same time and that's what doctor who is all about is being being two apparently contradictory things at the same time and my fifth and final favorite thing uh, it's not the long track into the junkyard or that lonely policeman I'd, I'd love to fit those in but i can't it's not even the cast really um it is just how lucky this episode is, and we are, that it exists not just once, but twice. And because we have two different versions of it, we really learn from an unearthly child not just what Doctor Who is, but also what it isn't. You can compare the two versions and see what choices are made to show what this programme actually is. So Susan doesn't make Rorschach patterns for slightly too long. She spots a mistake in a history book, and that makes her mystery become a little bit more accessible to all of us it helps it helps us come in it still keeps its characters mysterious but it probably it makes them more mysterious because it doesn't make them specific susan isn't from the 49th century she's from another time another world they never tell us everything and the doctor is still strange and frightening in the version that actually went out but he isn't as cruel and he's also not as small as he is in in the unbroadcast version he doesn't focus down so heavily on on the terror of being caught in in the transmitted version he he still finds time to let susan know he's found a replacement for that faulty filament that he think or serve he's quite distracted he's quite absent-minded and he's on a higher plane than us and we can see that because he's calmer he's less concerned um i think we're in such a lucky position since 1991 being able to watch both of those versions the audience at the time couldn't know just how well that final version tells us all we need to know about Doctor Who and what it is. 
So those are my five favourite things. Um, if you or your listeners would like to find any of my wares, you can look up Into the Archives with Peter Fleming and find my Peter Fleming podcast, a entirely fictional comedy podcast all about lost TV and the golden age of television, which is the 60s and 70s. Sorry, everything that came after. Uh, thank you very much. Goodbye. Happy anniversary. Bye. I love Tom. I love Tom Burgess. He is such a charming performer. He's a lovely. He's a lovely chap too. He's very um, d- d- disarming and and uh, um, lovely and uh, humble is is wrong in that sense. But he's just a, he's just a very easy, lovely, nice chap. He's a nice chap, and he has a sort of old world energy about him because he's uh, he's young. He's only about he's only twenty nine, I think. Although. We were stopped in the park by a Newsbeat uh, reporter who wanted to interview us about. And I said, I can't, I can't be interviewed on Newsbeat. I, I present on the BBC. Tom said, I actually work for the BBC on uh, Blue Peter, so I can't, I can't either. So he was like, oh, damn! I was wanting to interview people about dog walking, but we weren't allowed to. We we can't be vox pops on the BBC. And he said, oh, so so is is is, is this your dad? Then is it? So, no, he thought. He thought. He thought I was Peter's. Uh, Peter Freud is Tom's dad. Uh, Tom plays Peter Fleming. Uh, if you like comedy and you like old telly, you will love Tom's podcast. And Peter Fleming is a gorgeous character, utterly, utterly charming. It's not a piss take at all. It is. It is completely done out of love, but is charming and funny and brilliantly performed. And if you haven't discovered Tom's work, do because you'll love it. And that's coming from me, who's somebody that did a Doctor Who show and, you know, slightly thinks every other everyone else should back off, <laughs> frankly. But he did a lovely Doctor Who show uh, as Peter Fleming and it's beautiful. But yeah, check out his uh, Into the Archive and that character because you'll love it. It'll be right up your street. If you're listening to this, uh, you definitely need to be listening to that. And isn't that interesting how... Uh, uh, the, yes, and of course, the pilot, the Rorschach... Ha ha ha. I love the Rorschach TARDIS Igblot, but Sidney Newman was right. You can't really tell what it is. We know what it is because we see the TARDIS console later. But um, And it's beautiful. And the ink, ink, just ink on paper. Strange, isn't it? And of course, something quite commonplace then, but alien to us now. But simple tools, you know, made into something abstract, weird, just out of a simple device of blots folded onto a bit of paper. But it probably was a step too far, slightly too mysterious. So they went for that wonderfully economical, she's reading a book on the French Revolution and she spots a mistake in it. That's all you need. It is genius. But I'm glad we have the Rorschach thing because I think that is a wonderful idea and it's a brilliant visual. And they abandoned it and it's never been in Doctor Who, but we can still see it and enjoy it. That's because we have the pilot, which has been chosen twice by Jim and by Tom and wasn't chosen by me. As have the school children, <laughs> which have been chosen. And neither of them have chosen William Hartnell. So at the moment, William Hartnell, Doctor Who, has scored less than the schoolboy who goes, <laughs> and the episode that was never broadcast. You see, I, I, and people thought this was going to be repetitive. I thought everyone would choose William Hartnell. And he deserves to be chosen by everybody. But also, isn't it wonderful that he hasn't been? Because he's still always going to be the first Doctor Who and he's still always going to be brilliant. Uh, But for the purposes of this podcast, uh, some people are looking in slightly different directions. And I'm fine with that. Now then, who's next? Well, look, I mean, I'm getting Doctor Who fans to... uh 
tell me their favourite things about the first episode of Doctor Who. So, I should get... If we're talking about the original, you might say, I should get one of the original Doctor Who fans, shouldn't I? He did such a good job on the happy times and places for Marco Polo. And he's such an erudite man. And he wrote the Bible on the first few years of the show called The Early Years. He is J. Jeremy Bentham. He's uh, an interesting, educated, charming, old school. Uh, and in, I mean, old school in the best possible way. I'm a lot of time this man. I don't really know him that well. Um, he wears it very lightly. You know, he's a fan of your. He was one of the. He was one of the first fan names I ever knew, and and uh, was always associated with scholarship because he wrote well and he researched diligently and he dug into places you know I didn't think it was possible to dig and taught us so much about what we know and you know reached out to so many of those people who were crucial in the early days and chronicled them. Uh, is an example to us all, and every time I met him, he's been hugely humble, uh, very kind, uh, and I'm flattered to have him on my podcast again, having done such a good job on Marco Polo. Let's let's hear him introduce himself. Hello there, Toby. Five great things about an unearthly child that are personal to me, eh? Ooh, certainly there are a lot of candidates. The music, the title sequences, the performances, but in a bid to come up with elements that some of your illustrious other guest narrators might not cover, I thought I'd approach my five from the perspective of someone who has lived who practically all of his life, watching continuously as this majestically beautiful totem of televised creativity has evolved down the decades and, of course, continues to evolve. Therefore, some of what I've pitched and picked out relates not just to the unearthly child alone, but to some of the lush growth that stemmed from that small acorn we saw planted in the autumn of 1963. Totem! Lush growth, acorn. Ah, see, I was wise to you. I didn't know who I was going to choose for this, and I sort of, I, I reached out to a random selection of people, all of whom I consider illustrious in different ways. Uh, and and I just wanted Jeremy because, uh, you know, he means so much to me, even though, as I said, I don't really know him that well. Uh, but, but you know, when I when I was younger, you know, it was, it was people like Jeremy, but particularly Jeremy, who were, you know, opening up, up the possibilities of of how we learnt about the past of the show but listen to that uh opening that he just gave us and the fact that he's gone oh well i, I think other people might choose you know every you know loads of people said oh i'm worried about this being repetitive and he's gone well i'm worried about repetitive so i'm gonna do this and he's gonna have his own unique perspective because he was there you know he remembers all of this from the first time round for goodness sake um but he's gone, right, so I'm going to tackle it this way. And, of course, that's what I love about this. I don't want to blow this podcast trumpet because it's essentially it's just a man talking. It's not that special. But what I love about the the guests who I've asked to do this have all been so wonderful uh, and kind and they give their time for free and, and, and they really think about it. And, uh, and the one thing I say is, you know, be you, bring yourself to it. And, of course, everybody is different. Doctor Who celebrates the individual often in many ways and it always introduces us to guest characters in whom it is interested. And I would like it if this podcast, you know, did the same and that we essentially go, okay, so 
Tom's approach is going to be different to Jeremy's, is going to be different to special guest you haven't heard yet. Uh, so I'm intrigued to see what Jeremy has, how how he has decided to tackle this. And this is this is insightful in and of itself, how each one of our guests from their different perspectives tackles this uh, challenge of being told to pick five things. And I call them things with a capital T. Things can be anything you want. Uh, some will be very personal. Some will be very much in a particular creative ballpark. Some will be based on, you know, when this particular person watched this particular instalment, whatever. And Jeremy watched it when it went out. My goodness. Here's Jeremy's first thing. Maybe the most incredible aspect of an unearthly child is that it was born out of so much adversity, any aspects of which could have strangled it pre-birth or diminished it to the ranks of just another short-lived series. Right from those early fan-led endeavours in the late 70s, early 80s to research the history and development of Doctor Who, it was immediately apparent how much resistance there was within the BBC to Sidney Newman and Donald Wilson's ideas for the show. It was going to be made by the drama department, not children's television, surely not. A year-long production? Preposterous. That's a soap, not a drama series. And look at the budget you need. Special effects? Can't do those convincingly, particularly not in the studios at Lime Grove that we've given you. List of gripes against Newman and Vision and his imported methodologies just kept on growing. And that almost paled by comparison with all the flack producer Verity Lambert faced as a young woman taking a producer's job at the BBC in 1963. And how much of that misogynistic flack came from women, fellow women, inside the corporation itself. And yet, in spite of these obstacles and so many more, not least production of a botched first episode that could have resulted in the show being written off, somehow... That passed on the second attempt piece of television fought its way out into the world and allowed us to take this remarkable baby instantly to our hearts. Oh, God, I loved that. <laughs> I, I'm so pleased I asked Jeremy. Um, and his and actually, because I haven't listened to any of these before, I'm listening to all of these live, by the way, um, because I want everything to be spontaneous. And, of course, I didn't want what I chose to be influenced by what everybody said. So I'm only just now looking at the uh, the, the file names. And his, 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 his file name for choice number one is called Pushing Treacle Uphill. I mean, even the, fi even the file name is gorgeous. And I love that tribute he pays to, you, you know, the... the, the the opprobrium that was heaped upon these BBC employees who were trying to do this thing that, again, nobody knew was going to be this historical masterpiece. It was just another show, you know, that they were trying to make. Um, history has been kind to it uh, and, and proves that all that, you know, all that butting of heads and all that swimming against the tide was was worth it. But uh, I loved how he phrased that and sort of, you know, explains that, that, that Doctor Who was born out of you know stubbornness and commitment and 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 actually bucking against the system and and mavericks you know b b playing against uh you know the 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 general direction that the wind was blowing in and uh, and all of that is again kind of emblematic of the show that they ended up creating and i love that jeremy has thought to point that out especially in such a beautifully titled <laughs> uh file uh number two David Arthur Whittaker 
35 years old when he entered the orbit of Doctor Who, and to my mind almost cruelly omitted from Mark Gatiss's otherwise pitch-perfect Adventure in Space and Time 2013 love letter to Doctor Who's origins. But perhaps that was inevitable, given that so much of Whittaker's role in the development of an earthly child, and all that followed, largely remains an enigma, if only because nobody in fandom ever got to meet him in person, before his tragic and early death from cancer in 1980, aged just 51. Yet I am firmly of the belief you just cannot overstate what he brought to Doctor Who. Whittaker rounded out the Doctor's character, turning away from the condescending, vitriolic and sometimes just unpleasant person witnessed in the pilot version of An Unearthly Child. The Hartnell Doctor we the audiences witnessed on the 23rd of November 1963 was already more thoughtful, less arrogant, while still commanding and willing to give only hints of his true and vast intellect. He wasn't yet overtly warm and affectionate, but Whittaker himself would work on that in subsequent episodes, and in the process, begin the Doctor's evolution into the core central figure we recognise today. David Whittaker truly got Doctor Who from the off, that I firmly believe. I love to think that all he absorbed from his initial endeavours on the programme, and the stories that followed, fired his imagination so exponentially enabling him to pen comic strips, novelizations, stories for children's annuals, movie scripts and stage plays, all based upon concepts, formats and ideas, shaped during the evolution of the show's first 13 weeks. And if you'll allow me a personal memory here, I recall a genuine hair standing up on the back of my neck moment while interviewing June Barry, David Whittaker's first wife in 1984, about her former husband. She spoke about how there was something quite old-fashioned, fastidious and punctilious in David's mannerisms, something slightly out of sync with the world of the 1960s. And I couldn't help but wonder to myself if perhaps we had glimpsed a little bit of the true David Whittaker in the character of Edward Waterfield that he wrote for his own scripts in The Evil of the Daleks. Jeremy, I am so pleased I asked you to do this. Uh, you've put that so beautifully. Um, it's, I, uh, you know, I love the people who made Doctor Who, and I, I, I do get a bit emotional about it because they were the names that illuminated my childhood, which was, you know, one of, of fearing my own shadow and worry and loneliness and all sorts of other things. And, and these names spoke of another world, an amazing world. And I never, you know, I never thought I'd get to be sort of part of it. And, I'm, you know, I know I'm only sort of peripheral, um, you know, I'm a lovey with an iPhone, but I, I have got to, you know, I, I made a documentary about David Whittaker and, I, and it's, that was quite an emotional process because you actually discover that name that you see on the side of a book and you think, well, that's his life sorted, isn't it? You know, he's a writer. Um, and, and you think, you know, they, they were there, you know, in the early days of Doctor Who, you know, they must have, you know, just gone on to great things and had a fantastic life. And then actually you, you scratch and you, and you discover things. And of course they're human and they're flawed and actually their life didn't necessarily turn out the way they might have imagined or certainly that one might have imagined. And of course they're just people and being a person is 
fraught with loneliness, isolation, scariness, all those other things that one felt as a kid uh, that never actually stop. And you have to keep fighting them and, and you have to keep using all the tools at your disposal to fight at them. And sometimes that is, you know, one's obsession with a piece of magic that is a gift that keeps on giving and the, you know, the comradeship and creativity and all those other things that gives you. And I am indebted to people like David Whittaker. And it is very important to me that their names are not forgotten, I think, because I worry. I, my, my dad went when I was four and I, I think I felt forgotten. And, and I didn't want to be forgotten. I wanted to I wanted to matter to people. I don't think I felt I mattered to anybody. And so it was always important to me that names mattered and were registered, which is perhaps why I'm obsessed with credits and things like that, probably to a, an unnatural extent. But I wanted to those people to live. I wanted to, I wanted to acknowledge to those people, even though they're gone, that they're important, really important, those names. And David Whittaker, I think, is because he's credited a story editor, obviously, but he is such an important architect of Doc 2. And I mentioned about the, you know, the additions to Terry Nation script. I think there's so much work that Whittaker does to shape the, the, the feel and the phraseology and the dialogue and the, and the, and, and the, yes, the sort of slightly literary, slightly fairy tale in, in, in occasion qualities, especially of those early years of the show, those foundations upon which all our understanding is built of Doctor Who. And I think he, he truly was an architect of the show. Uh, so I, I, and I love that um, Jeremy got to speak to June Berry, which we, we sadly didn't. She didn't die that long ago, but she'd been, she'd been poorly for a, for a very long time uh, and, and not able to be interviewed. Um, and, th and that he got that record and that, and that actually David, he feels, I didn't know this, lives on in in Edward Waterfield in Evil, uh, who is such a charming character as well. Um, and there is a book coming out by Simon Gerrier about David Whittaker, so that will take on the work, because we, you know, we had to be you know, necessarily pithy and, and we were making a television programme, which is, like, which is a different task uh, about in our documentary, my Chris Chapman and I made, called Looking for David, in which we, you know, hopefully you know helped him live again a little bit but in book form it's 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 very different and much more detail and uh, i'm looking forward to seeing what simon has done so i'm glad that uh, and he was 35 i think of him as such an old man he looks old in all those pictures i am 14 years older than david whittaker was when he was producing magic on a clickety clackety typewriter in a drafty office in television center all those years ago got 15 years on him and i god i i can't even tie my shoelaces properly i think you won david jeremy's third thing you know everyone is used to the idea that doctor who's first story is a four-parter variously known as the tribe of gum tribe of orb hundred thousand bc or just an unearthly child but if you take a step back what certainly strikes me is that these first four episodes actually comprise two wholly separate adventures. A three-part story of capture, survival and escape on Paleolithic Earth, but preceded by a single-part story concerning the kidnapping of two schoolteachers from London, 1963. Under a different set of rules or protocols, an unearthly child in its earlier pilot production 
might be regarded as a mathematician would perhaps see it as story zero, moving from its point of origin over to story one, the caveman serial. Now, not that I'm going to open that can of worms, but it is absolutely astounding how self-contained those opening 25 minutes of the first episode are. We used today, in the 21st century, to Doctor Who episodes whirling along amid a flurry of characters dashing around crowded streets or hurtling along corridors with sonic screwdrivers being waved like Harry Potter's wand. But it's even more astonishing to consider how an unearthly child, seemingly in a totally unhurried manner, packs in 25 minutes of mystery, backstory, rising tension, conflict and a dazzling trip through space and time as it goes from a dark, quiet night outside a junkyard to the incongruous appearance of a London police box perched in a desert-like landscape, its arrival watched by... something. Nothing less than script-writing genius. Yes, it is. And, and I mean, that's, I guess, why we were able to do this as a solo episode. Uh, and, and actually, again, it was Jim Sachs's genius of... of, of choosing the caveman story in isolation which he was doing to do those episodes a favor actually because they've always lived in the shadow of this but uh yes it is it isn't really a four-part story it's a one-part story followed by a three-part story but we lump them all together and i don't mind that and it's kind of because it's what we do and of what we've done but uh it this you know this is a 25 minutes that you don't need the next three episodes of the in inverted commas story in order to appreciate what this does this launch is not just the tribe of gum story episodes uh, i will i will say the words uh, hundred thousand bc uh, on my deathbed and not before and then i'll do it through gritted teeth but uh, and i'll be slightly more annoyed that i've had to do that than i'm about to die uh <laughs> see also the massacre of st bartholomew's eve and inside the spaceship um because <laughs> i'm because i'm because i'm a stubborn git um uh but that's that that's you know it, it, it the first episode is not setting up three episodes those three episodes in as much as it's setting up the whole of the series uh and and for that it is i for that it is it is it is perfect number four down the years thousands of pages have been written about that mysterious traveler in time and space known only as the doctor I would argue, though, that while William Hartnell's character as the First Doctor is utterly compelling and unlike any other professorial figure of wisdom and eccentric authority seen anywhere on television, stage or in films, it was the relationship with his granddaughter and with the schoolteachers Ian and Barbara that kept me, the viewer, alongside all of them as the series moved from one episode to another. Structurally, then, an unearthly child isn't just... Doctor Who the central figure, supported by three line-feeding role-players. William Russell's Ian is the show's co-star, the hero figure who drove the action elements in, a given, in any given story. He could easily have become the warrior leader presence, were it not for the knowledge's power personality of the Doctor. That clash of person perspectives is what made those first confrontations inside the TARDIS particularly during the first episode, so compelling. Which one would win their war of words? And, just as it seemed, Ian was emerging victorious and they'd escaped from the ship, 
that devious old doctor scored the winner by operating the TARDIS and taking everyone away from 1963. Perhaps forever. Jacqueline Hill's Barbara seemed to spend most of the first episode a bit on the back foot. Happy to let Ian do most of the talking. But as the weeks went by, Barbara's stature just grew and grew in our affections as she delivered the emotional intelligence and insights that gave her the edge in many confrontation scenes, some of them with Ian or even with the Doctor. As for the unearthly child herself, I've always been glad Susan never became the never-clad, judo-fighting, stylish fashionista that Caroline Ford said she wanted her to be. It was her combination of theoretical capability versus her vulnerability due to lack of practical experience that won this fantastic foursome some great cliffhangers, especially if they involved a sprained ankle or two. Ah, uh, well, I chose the, uh, the, uh, the, the quartet as well, but uh, I thought Jeremy enunciated that very well. Um, and... Uh, I have nothing to add, so I shouldn't because this podcast is going to be about 100 years long. Nicely put, Jeremy, and I also chose The Foursome. Uh, and Jeremy's fifth thing is... Maybe my favourite aspect of an unearthly child is the wording that appears right at the very beginning of the episode. Principally because those words have come to define, I think, the very ethos of Doctor Who. They're right there in plain sight on the door of the police box. Five little words that speak volumes. Advice and assistance obtainable immediately. They've come to mean what the fully rounded, multi-incarnation doctor brings to almost every parlous situation. David Whittaker, that man again, was the first to offer hints that the TARDIS was far more than a mere machine when the ship adamantly refused to let the doctor pilot it to its own destruction in Story 3. Mind you, it took until Neil Gaiman's excellent The Doctor's Wife for the TARDIS to explicitly reveal that it, she, always took the craft and its passengers to where they were needed. So consider the events of An Unearthly Child and its subsequent episodes in the Stone Age. Here, the four unsuspecting travellers find themselves, like the alien monolith in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 movie, amidst a tribe of primitives slowly dying of starvation and hypothermia because they lack the one key bit of knowledge that will enable them not only to survive but ultimately thrive and begin what we might call the ascent of man how to make and then use fire and that's just what the TARDIS four, there we call them passengers bring to the tribe of orb immediate advice and assistance in the form of a burning fire plus some self-interest in escaping from the captivity as well. It's not in any Doctor Who series format guide or program Bible that I've ever read, and yet those five words remain as relevant to the Doctor's modus vivendi today as they did 60 years ago. No guns, no combat training, no warrior zeal, just advice and assistance given to those most in need of it. Oh, Jeremy, that's brilliant. Something so familiar that I haven't considered in that way at all. And, I mean, that's what Doctor Who does. It makes you consider something that you thought was familiar in different ways and actually shows that they can be magical as well as frightening and strange and scary. Uh, what a brilliant choice and what a brilliant summation of the show from an angle that was right under my nose but I'd never considered. 
uh, Jeremy Bentham's book, Doctor Who and, and Early Year, the Early Years, has uh, has been out there for years and years and years, and you can pick up copies if you haven't got it, if you are a, a younger fan. Do I have any younger fan listeners? If I do, get in touch. I suspect it's probably largely middle-aged men that listen to this. Um, I hope not. I hope there are uh, there are fans of all different uh, 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 ages, gender identities, sexes, uh, 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 nationalities, and all sorts. Um, so, and, and if if any of you in those categories have not availed yourself of Doctor Who the early years, or any of Jeremy's very scholastic early Doctor Who work, it's it's uh, it really laid the foundations for how we understand the show today. And I'm delighted with that contribution. Thank you, Jeremy, for doing it. But thank you for doing it in such a manner. Um, everybody I've asked to do this is an interesting. And fascinating person as i say there was no method to my madness really i just sort of went oh i'll ask them oh i'll ask them and i did it over a period of of two or three weeks and um and, and not everybody could do it and some people said they would and then forgot or whatever um uh but i'm yeah i'm delighted let's see who else we have to uh to come because as i say um we've i i, I tried to get a range of people as well so it's not all you know me- you know, men men of a certain class and age so for a show that is about new horizons and fresh perspectives uh, there is i find occasionally resistance amongst chaps of my ilk to uh, younger fans so not not the jeremy's of this world but to younger fans female fans fans with different perspectives different ideas and of course, what keeps this show alive is that it keeps reinventing itself and it keeps appealing to new generations and new demographics of people. So I am not one of those guys who resists, you know, the people who will probably, you know, and, and you know, start start doing some of the things that I currently do and benefit from being able to do, which I, I see as a privilege, not a right. And uh, and I think uh, you know, uh, and I, 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 you know, I, I am glad uh, to see to see other people getting some 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 opportunities and getting to enjoy the spoils of uh, of being able to publicly talk about Doctor Who and all of that sort of thing. Because um, I don't see it as my job; I see it as a hobby that's got out of hand. But uh, you know, I'm an actor and a comedian. All the other stuff is gravy, really. Um, so I certainly am not, you know, proprietorial about, well, hang on, I talk about Doctor Who on the news or whatever. So I, I'm absolutely thrilled that there are uh, young people coming through uh, to talk about Doctor Who. And, and I mean, I have to say some of the things that they say are just noise to me and I completely don't understand them. But that's fine. That That is what life is, is that the world that is being created is for them to live in, not me. Uh, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm heading towards oblivion and uh, oblivion will embrace me and they need to make the world comfortable for them. That's not just about Doctor Who. That's just about uh, the young. Uh, I mean, I'm only 49, but that's uh, that's 75 in Haydoke years. But the point is, thrilled to have Jeremy on because he is a fan of yore, but to show that I am not just all about paying... Uh, my you know pay, paying homage paying homage to uh, you know the fans that came before what about the fans who have come since so right up to date 
with uh, the writer of the Doctor Who quiz book and somebody who, with whom I've uh, had the pleasure to uh, consort on a number of occasions at various events, including quizzes of Rassilon, who has an enthusiasm uh, that is unparalleled, but also, you know, doesn't know a massive amount about a classic series because she came to the show. She is a fan you know, of of the new age of Doctor Who, but she has respect for the old series and has actually just started to watch it in order for a podcast of hers. Um, but her perspective will, I suspect, throw up entirely fresh things for for, for me because it, it, it comes from a she comes from a place that doesn't take for granted some of the things that the majority of you and certainly I might do. So let me introduce you to she should need no no introduction because she's been about doing things all over the place. Doctor Who related. Uh, her name is Beth Axford and here she is. Hello my name is Beth and I am a Doctor Who author, writer of many things and host of the Who Watch podcast. Toby has asked me to share my five favourite things from an unearthly child, my five favourite bits, concepts, lines, whatever um, and I'm going to jump straight in with the very first shot, the very first scene with the, the Doctor Who theme tune music that plays over the scene as it pans around to the TARDIS, I think there is nothing more breathtaking than that first smoky black and white moment. Um, it's so beautiful and it will be seared onto my brain forever. How funny. Having introduced her saying she will come from a completely different perspective from mine, uh, we both chose exactly the same thing for the first thing. Ha ha ha. You see, uh, we're, uh, despite all our differences, we are all also the same doctor who makes companions of us all my second favorite thing from an unearthly child i think it has to be like susan while she's in school i just love her weirdness her intelligence how funny she is she kind of knows too much and then she kind of pretends not to know much and then she looks silly um i think she just represents everybody who is a little bit of an oddball or a bit of an outsider at school and i think she's really adorable and i think we can all kind of relate to that i think a lot of doctor who fans can relate to being a bit of an outsider i know i can and i really love that about you know the very first beginnings of doctor who having like someone on earth as a bit of an outsider now that is really interesting because i think a lot of it you know it's a commonality isn't it with doctor who fans we say oh we we stuck out a little bit um, and that's why you know we identified with the doctor but of course it's not the doctor in that first episode I mean, it's and, and, and we sort of talk about the Doctor in that way, sort of slightly metaphorically. But in that first episode, it is Susan literally being the weird kid in class. I hadn't really thought of it like that. Um, but but she's absolutely there for that. And, and you know, almost prophesying what fans of this show, you know, what the fan community of the show will, will in a large part be made up from. Isn't that interesting? I hadn't really thought about that before. Good spot, Beth. And uh, and again, Beth's experience and feelings, although, you know, the, the centuries that divide us, which clearly will not be undone, um, uh, pr provide all sorts of differences. I think, you know, Beth speaks for certainly a lot of fans of my generation in, in to how they felt and why perhaps they were drawn to the show. Isn't that interesting? My third favourite unearthly child element is Ian and Barbara because they're just classic characters for me and they're very it's their very first scene that I'm that I'm sort of picking because I love that we are introduced to them as characters and then we follow them into the TARDIS like they're the audience you know we we're we're going on the journey with them to the TARDIS to get kidnapped eek um 
And I just love that. I love that it begins that way. And I think it's really engaging and no wonder it lasted so long. That's very true. And yes, we often talk of the companions as audience identification figures, but they, I mean, they, they, they literally do um, ferry us towards the story. And we don't see the Doctor for, what is it, 12 and a half minutes. Um, and Susan is the mystery that they have to solve. So they, they carry us into the adventure. Uh, and, you, you know, they, they are... They are the Rose Tyler of of the original Doctor Who because that was, you know, that was what was so clever about the the, the relaunch is that you know the the identifiable figure, the the normal girl working in a shop, living on a housing estate, you know, going about her everyday life, is the one that carries us into the adventure and through whose eyes we see it. Um, and interestingly, Rose is named after the female protagonist of that first episode and the first episode of Doctor Who an unearthly child is well I, I, I'm straying now slightly from the Ian and Barbara point but is named after the so the, the female young female protagonist a slightly weirder one uh, of of the very first episode which I hadn't thought before isn't that interesting that's taken us away from the Ian and Barbara point that Beth made so well but if, if I think of a point uh, if, I th if I think of an observation I will say it even if it's in the wrong place my fourth favourite thing from an unearthly child is the fact that the doctor his first moment begins with him just coughing, coughing away <laughs> has a big, a big cough before he even speaks and I just think it's really funny and fitting that the first doctor comes on screen with a cough <laughs> my last my final and last favourite thing about an unearthly child is the line, a piece of dialogue. Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension? I, I just love that line. I love the whole scene. I think it really encapsulates. There's something really iconic about it. I don't know if it's sort of growing up, seeing those quotes and watching Adventure in Space and Time and an unearthly child when I was a kid, but I just think that that piece of dialogue is really, it really sticks in my brain as a really beautiful part of 60s Doctor Who, part of the beginning of Doctor Who and to, to describe them as wanderers I just think it's so beautiful and encapsulates the Doctor and Susan so well and those are my five favourite standout things from an unearthly child, thank you Toby for asking me to share. Oh thanks Beth uh, and I, 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 I love the fact that she loves the fact that the first thing the Doctor does is cough, there's nothing else to say about <coughs> And that was a quote that, that that wasn't I didn't deliberately cough then to illustrate the point. Um, I, I love that, <laughs> um, but there's nothing else to really say about that. But I do uh, uh, the uh, I I I am pleased. Isn't that interesting though? That um, uh, that 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 her final thing that she chose, like her first thing that she chose, was something that i chose uh she, you know she likes that wanderers in the fourth dimension exchange and uh and, and i'm glad that speaks to her as profoundly as it speaks to me so you know i think sometimes there's certainly a way that social media conducts itself there's uh you know there's a schism there's a divide between you know older school doctor who fans like me and and young enthusiastic let people be young and enthusiastic please everybody uh, uh, and we and we automatically, I think, think of the differences, don't we? But look, Beth just showed that uh, she and I aren't so different. But um, 
I'll be dead first. That's the only thing. Thanks to Beth. And I'm, you know, I'm really pleased to have met uh, so many young... I, don't, I, I, I keep saying young like I'm this this antediluvian fogey. Um, but, and I, but, but, you know, there are younger people coming through and we need them because they will watch Doctor Who and they will make Doctor Who in the future and they will keep Doctor Who alive. And it has to appeal to people beyond people of my generation and beyond people who liked the show in the 70s, 80s, 90s. I'm still lucky that I also like it now and love it now um, and, and love New Who and, and and very much see it as part of the same show. And I'm thrilled when people who came to Doctor Who through Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat and Chris Chibnall uh, go back and find that they like stuff about the older episodes, which is a hard if you're somebody that brought up on 21st century television, you know, it's a hard filter through which to watch stuff, which is why, as I record this, we're anticipating a, a colourised cut-down version of the Daleks, which is an entirely legitimate thing to do. And as Russell said on the one show uh, the other day, um, you know, a lot of young people won't watch black and white. It's too much of a barrier. And that is that is not their fault. You, 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 are, a, you are a product of the stimuli that you have been poked by uh, and there's not much stimulating about grayscale images and, and multi-camera and you know the pace and all of the, that sort of thing. It's not it's not a bad thing that a, that that's beyond the pale to some and that they can't see past the production values in the same way that silent movies looked a bit sort of strange to me and a bit boring to me when I was very young. I then realised they were haunting and scary and terrifying and brilliant as, as well as I got older. But it took a while, um, so I am delighted. Uh, and I'm predisposed to, you know, enjoy older stuff. Uh, so I'm delighted that there are people like Beth who who fell in love with new Doctor Who, as we will call it, for want of a better descriptor, who've gone back and seen the merit in the old stuff as well. That warms my cockles. Beth uh, has written the Doctor Who quiz book, uh, which please get because the more it sells, the more likely they are to let her do more stuff, and she deserves it. Uh, and she's doing uh, and, and follow her on Twitter at Who Watch Podcast, Who Watch Podcast, which is a podcast uh, on all the podcast platforms. And she and her colleague are watching Doctor Who from the very beginning so that uh, I think that's been done before in book form, uh, but not by uh, not by people who've come come from come from uh, their their perspective. And uh, and they're watching through, so 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 you'll be able to hear what they have to say about an unearthly child and beyond. Really d delighted uh, Beth has given her time for this because Beth is the first guest today who has not previously contributed to Happy Times and Places. I've brought back some old favourites from previous ones or people who thought were, were appropriate to do. I've tried to get a mix of people, but I've also been lucky to get some people who've never contributed to the podcast before. So that's quite exciting as well, is it? But the next person, if I'm doing Doctor Who fans at the top here, um, uh, I, I feel it shouldn't also just be Doctor Who fans from the United Kingdom. So of course, to go abroad, I have to go to the podcaster extraordinaire the producer of more podcast hours of Doctor Who than someone like me could ever dream of, uh, and a wonderful fellow to boot, um, pioneer of Doctor Who podcasting and still leading the field, and that is, of course, Stephen Schapansky from Radio Free Scarrow, who is going to be our man in Canada 
giving us the Canadian perspective, the Sydney Newman perspective, if you like, of An Unearthly Child. I wonder what Stephen likes. I wonder, wonder how different it will be from what I and the other contributors so far have decided are the five best things about those first 25 minutes of Doctor Who. Hello, Toby. This is Stephen from Radio Free Scar with my favourite five things from the first episode of An Unearthly Child, also called An Unearthly Child, the first one in no particular order. Uh, William Hartnell, the Doctor himself, the original, you might say. I, I love that we have the pilot episode to compare it to where he's very harsh and brusque and uh and he gets notes to say let's change this character to this and this and this and and this in the original broadcast episode he's much lighter and and he has his giggles and stuff and it reminds us that this is a performance i think sometimes we you know without the lack of with the lack of uh interview material for hartnell we don't have a real william hartnell to compare his performance of the doctor to and i think we often latch his performance of the doctor as william hartnell and uh, it's clearly a performance he's an actor and he's a good actor at that and that's uh he's one of the main reasons why the show took off um well at last somebody's chosen poor old william hartnell and it's because it is, it is one of his best performances in the role. And it's a slightly different performance from the one we got later. And I don't see that as them maybe going, oh, this performance in the first episode is wrong. I think his performance in the first episode is absolutely right. But as he settled into the role and got more familiar with his co-stars and, 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 and settled into a routine, you know, perhaps more of... You know that you know he was he was more inclined to be sort of cheerful and dotty, and he's he's not as irascible as as, as he's often written up the first Doctor. But in that first episode, he kind of is. Uh, but that's perfect for that first episode, and I think it is a pitch perfect performance. As I say, I love those darting eyes and those fangs of his, and and, and the wig and the the look. Um, but it's that smile. It's that strange disarming but it's not disarming because he's not trying to be charming it's a it's a peculiar smile it it suggests that he is that he is benign and he in fact but we know that he is in fact not and that he is hiding something and he is and he is using his image as a as a sort of you know benign old man to actually you know get rid of uh, the 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 pesky interlopers into his uh, his you know his junkyard haven um and it is a brilliant performance and he looks magnificent and uh I, i'm almost ashamed it's taken me and four other people before we get somebody to just say william hartnell because uh, <laughs> he deserves to stand tall because even though he's the character who is in it the least really he is you know it it is it is the introduction to a programme called Doctor Who, and William Hartnell is Doctor Who. Second one, the opening titles. My goodness, uh, they are just perfect. They are absolutely perfect, from the music to the, the visuals. Um, it's, uh, it's a testament that we still have the original sound of the U and the bass in there even today, and Murray Gold's version of the theme in the 60th anniversary of the show it's uh it's it's still a stunning piece of work and i'm glad they they have more or less kept it the same throughout the, the entire history of the show um yes i mean i i i i mean I, I i i did choose the the sound but i didn't choose 
and I could so easily have done. I tried to sneak them in elsewhere, but then I didn't do the TARDIS takeoff. But that synthesis of opening music, the signal howl around, a, a simple device, and yet, again, it's gone for abstract rather than literal. It's a, it's a suggestive thing that, that, that is all about mood and all about strangeness that suggests time travel, but only because you're watching a show about time travel. Um, and when you know when some of that footage was used in Amal and the Night Visitors, it it sended it suggested you know ascension to heaven or whatever. Um, but it is majestic and yet you know rendered from you know something probably discovered by mistake, which was you know filming filming a, a monitor zone output. It's the visual equivalent of white noise. Um, but then mixed together with that music, and again that is miraculous, isn't it? That the diddly dums and the ooeus are retained to this day. And I remember John Nathan Turner saying, you know, if you were to resurrect Doctor Who, this was during the wilderness years, you'd have to have the theme and you'd have to have the police box. And those things were in the very first episode. They were the first things that we witnessed. The theme, then the police box. And they're still here to this day. And that shows that somebody knew what the hell they were doing. And it is a hell of a theme. Um, Third favourite thing. The giant lighting fixture above the TARDIS console. Peter Brahatsky designed it. It was far too large to be used going forward. So we get one of its rare appearances in the in the very first episode, which I love. I love that it features so prominently in the tales of the TARDIS set as well. Uh, and uh, it's it's it really gives a sense of the scale of that that whole set. That the fact that there's something actually above it too. A lot of times. Uh, in the in the show's history, set designers don't usually put uh, roofs and ceilings on because uh, because of the lighting grid. So the fact that they uh, took the attention to do that for the very first episode makes me happy. Um, yeah, that makes me happy too. And the fact that it's such a massive and impractical thing that that they didn't that, that again it gives the episode of first episode a feeling of oh okay. The TARDIS has that, but we just don't need to see it anymore. And you don't really see it that much in the episode, to be honest. Um, but you can see it and he's sort of going, well, how's, how's it lit? And in the future, we just go, well, it's, it's just it's just lit. We don't need to see the light bulbs. It's lit. It's illuminated. It's an illuminated control room. But Peter Brahatsky is going, no, no, we need to see the big space light. And then the scene shifters went, yeah, do, do we need to see it this week? Uh, uh, but... I love the fact that it exists and I love the fact that it's there in the established in the first episode and we can kind of think of it as it as it of, of being there, even though it largely and usually isn't. Fourth favorite thing. Ian Chesterton gets all the best lines. So, you know, you're telling me that this the that uh, a thing in the junkyard can move anywhere in time and space. Uh, that's just unbelievable. He gets all these great lines to basically He's kind of like Han Solo in Star Wars to me. He's a skeptic. And a lot of people who would be watching Star Wars or indeed Doctor Who at the time might well be skeptics as well. Might have the same sort of opinion uh, of Han Solo in Star Wars uh, with the Force and all that. And Ian with the TARDIS. He is he doesn't believe it. And he won't believe it until not even into this into the, at the end of this episode. And I think his character is important because if everyone was on board with believing that this time ship uh, was bigger on the inside than the outside, then then I don't think anybody would have would have you know everyone believing it doesn't make it believable. You know what I mean? And uh, and that's why I love that Ian is the skeptic, and of course William Russell uh, plays him brilliantly. Ian Chesterton is Han Solo. 
You heard it here first. <laughs> I love that. But it's true. And, and that speaks to so much about how carefully and brilliantly planned the whole dynamic of the show is, is that each character plays their own role in making this ridiculous concept sell and tell. They're very well placed to help tell the stories, but also sell the stories. And that's, you know, that's that, you know, their 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 attributes. You know, we need a young kid get into trouble. They've they've been chosen deliberately to make this format work as well as it can. And then within, you know, the the, the choosing of those figureheads, they've then written them to fulfil certain functions whilst remaining characters. And it's it's decept, you know, it's deceptively simple because it's actually not that simple um but they sort of keep it simple but actually that that enables it to be really complicated uh it's brilliant it's brilliant uh and the last favorite thing of an unearthly child the tardis sound effect heard in full possibly for the only time i think in the entire show's history it uh you know, all, along with the the theme song, it's it's a stunning piece of 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 sound uh, technology and creation, and that indeed has never been altered, apart from a couple of things in the Trout era, I want to say. But um, it's an iconic sound effect. It's 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 the it's the one thing that brings you hope, and uh, and joy and anticipation anytime you hear it uh, across the ages in Doctor Who, and it gets its start here, and it's wonderful. A man called Brian, his mum's back door key, a knackered bit of a piano, and time and space is torn apart, and we force our way through it within the timeship TARDIS. That's Doctor Who, isn't it? Brian Hodgson of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. One of the great, I know he's sung by us and interviewed by us, but one of the great uh, undersung heroes of Doctor Who, I've said it before and I'll say it again, the sound effects in 60s Who are vital to its ambience and to its success and to its unique feel, and none more so than that TARDIS sound effect, which has lasted to this, yeah, not just the theme, and the police box, as I mentioned before, but the TARDIS takeoff sound, as Stephen says, we get the really full version in this too, which we never quite hear uh, uh, like that again. But uh, but it, you know, I've, I've heard it on tapes and stuff like that. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of design that sounds like it's again been created for something that will endure. But actually, it was created. No. In fact, they didn't use it all the time, even then, either, for the materialisation. It sometimes went unaccompanied. Um, but it's a it's a wonderful piece of work by a lovely gentleman, Brian Hodgson, who is a legend. And uh, I'm, I'm privileged to have got to know him. And uh, he's, he's a very erudite and charming man. Uh, very gently spoken, lovely voice, intelligent fellow. Uh but also a brilliant engineer who, you know, put that piece together in, in, you know, without the use of computers and all the things that we have now. And he created something of indefinable magic. <laughs> uh, thanks, Stephen. Of course, Stephen, if you're listening to Doctor Who podcasts, you will know well. But if you've been living on another planet uh, or hiding away in a junkyard without access to the Internet... Radio Free Scaro is surely the longest running 
and certainly the most famous Doctor Who podcast. And, uh, you know, make sure you check it out. And Stephen is a, a, a lovely fella. And uh, I'm, I'm graced and honoured by his presence on this podcast. And he's been a great supporter of my endeavours. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to him. Thank you very much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydock. I'm very grateful to Katie Manning and to Louise Jameson for their happy birthday messages and to my guests who are choosing their favourite things about An Unearthly Child. And they were Tom Burgess, Beth Axford and Stephen Schapansky. There are loads more illustrious contributors queuing up to give birthday wishes and five favourite things. So tune into the next edition of this multi-part shattered and scattered throughout time and space in order to be brought together into one giant podcast to restore the podcast equilibrium uh, by subscribing and liking to Happy Times and Places. You can follow Happy Times and Places at at Podcasts and I can be found in all the usual internet places. Thanks to the patrons who make these podcasts possible. These mythic patrons of whom I speak normally get their names read out at the end of the episode, but uh, we're doing something slightly different for this 60th, just uh, due to expediency and, well, timey-wimey stuff. Uh, But uh, just because they haven't been mentioned by name on these podcasts doesn't mean that I'm not grateful to them and that they won't get mentioned a lot and everywhere else. Being mentioned in the credits is just one of the bonuses of being a patron, which you can become at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. You also get bonus releases and advanced material and monthly AMAs and other things like that. If you don't want to do the monthly thing, you don't get any bonuses, but you get the satisfaction of helping an independent artist uh, at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke, where you can uh, you know, offer... offer up uh, incentives for me to be creative in the forms of pretend cups of coffee Uh, but if you don't want to do the financial thing or can't and I totally get that times are tough uh, I'm just grateful to you for listening but what costs you nothing is to go to iTunes, Spotify, Podbean all those places and give these five stars and a few lines of positive review that really does help to get these out there and have other people listening to them word of mouth is good too tell your friends and you can find out more at Haydoke Podcasts at Toby Haydoke uh, on the various social media platforms, at Toby.Haydoke on Instagram. And uh, just keep liking, subscribing, supporting, and uh, most importantly, listening to Happy Times and Places and the other Toby Haydoke's Time Travels podcasts. (laughs) 